This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Can we live a tech-wise life? We interviewed author Amy Crouch. I don't know about you, but when I see a notification come in, I itch to look at it right away. And even if I manage not to, I'm thinking about it for the next 10 minutes. If I do open it, forget about willpower. 10 minutes of texting, two minutes of looking at Snapchat stories, and then... And then it's device and virtue. Hey, welcome back to Device and Virtue, where we argue the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life. We're coming to you from Chicago. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. And Chris, we have a great interview today. Absolutely. All about how we use technology in families. I get to interview first-time author Amy Crouch, who's 20 years old. She is a junior at Cornell. Cool. And she wrote a book all about the pressures that teenagers feel in an online world. And it's like everything that you and I talk about all the time, like social media, distraction, boredom, image. (laughs) So all the things that we face, (laughs) not just as teenagers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, No kidding. (laughs) Honestly, the book is called My TechWise Life, Growing Up and Making Choices in a World of Devices, published by Baker Books. And it's co-authored by, and this is who you've heard of, Andy Crouch. Ooh, same last name. (laughs) No kidding. Not married, (laughs) father and daughter. Yeah. And Andy Crouch, of course, you know, was the editor of Christianity Today magazine for like a decade. He was originally on InterVarsity staff at Harvard University. He's written five books. A lot of people know Culture Making. And the book that people will know that this goes along with is the book he wrote four years ago called... The TechWise Family. Right. We did a whole episode about it. We did. The great thing about this is Amy grew up in this TechWise family (laughs) and she's now went to college and Uh, said, I'm going to talk about how it went. (laughs) The proof is in the pudding now, Andy. We're going to find out. (laughs) Honestly, she's sort of incredible. I got to talk to both of them together and she is really smart, really interesting to the point where I thought this is not for teenagers. I am thinking about things I might need to do differently with my phone. Oh, yeah? it's Man, uh, I so it takes a 20-year-old to convince you, but I've been trying to convince you for like years and one book and your mind has changed. The book also features this new survey from Barna Research where they talk to like over a thousand teenagers from ages 13 to 21. And yep. so it has a, a lot of stuff about that. So we can talk about all this after I get you to listen to everything we talked about. Fantastic. Let's, Let's dive in. Okay. Well, hey, it's Chris, and I am here with Amy Crouch and Andy Crouch, the authors of the new book, My TechWise Life, Growing Up and Making Choices in a World of Devices, which just released uh, just this fall, November 2020. Amy, welcome. Thank you. And Andy, well, good to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you. Amy, some people might uh, hear just your names and go, oh, Amy and Andy, they're married. This is not true. Amy, you are Andy's daughter. Yes, that's right. Congratulations on your first book. Thank you. I'm very excited about it. What made you decide to write a book? Well, so it really starts with dad writing a book, as so many things do in our family. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so my dad, the Andy Crouch, who was mentioned, I think four years ago now, right, wrote this book, The TechWise Family, which was about us, the TechWise family. (laughs) You were the original TechWise family. (laughs) Exactly. It was this book about essentially what do we do as families about these devices which have entered our lives and are transforming Mm -hmm. them in ways which honestly we can't even quite untangle by ourselves. And so it was written sort of from his and from my mom's perspective, very much offering just guidance for parents, families when it comes to technology. 
And I actually wrote the foreword for that book. We, we were That's right, of, you did. Yeah, I, I did. I didn't realize that. No, I, we love the TechWise family, Adam mm-hmm. and I. We read it originally when it came out, and we really loved it. Can I ask you how old you are now? Are you 20? I'm 20, yeah. I'm a junior Congra- at university. Congratulations on writing a book. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> How old were you when, when this book was being written then? It's four or five years ago. Yeah, so I don't remember exactly how long it took Dad to, to write the book, but <laughs> <laughs> which he does take his time sometimes. But I was in my teens, yeah, I was 16, 17. I think maybe 17 when I wrote the foreword, although mm-hmm. maybe don't, don't check that. But yeah, I was, my brother and I were both kind of old enough to reflect on what mom and dad had chosen to do and also old enough to kind of be participating in these tech-wise decisions. Mm-hmm. And that book had a really wonderful impact. I know Dad has been really happy to see the ways that it's been helpful to families. But one thing that we were really thinking about and noticing is, what about the kids? Like, what about the children and teens who are growing up with these devices, experiencing life in a very different way than their parents? We really wanted someone to be speaking to people my age and saying, hey, how can we be thinking about technology and using it wisely? And it seemed yeah. like nobody else would write a book. And so I was like, well, I guess I will do that. But but seriously, I felt that I wanted to share my story of growing up in this very intentional family, and I wanted to do my best to kind of start a conversation among people my age around Mm -hmm. our devices and how we could be using them in a really healthy and redemptive way. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask. Who did you write the book for? Were you picturing other people like you? Absolutely, yeah. People my age and slightly younger, high school students, people who have Mm -hmm. grown up with with iPhones in their pockets and iPads in the backpack, that, that's the audience. Yeah, that's amazing. I want to say I'm a huge fan because I did get to read the book. And it struck me a little bit that you were probably writing this for other teens or people growing up in, mm-hmm. in, with those devices. But it's a little bit like uh, how Harry Potter is labeled a young adult fiction, <laughs> but everyone has read it. And it's super good. I think your book is probably in the YA category. It's not fiction. <laughs> but but that everyone might want to read this book. Because I can see teenagers wanting to read this. But you are clear and interesting. And tell the perspective of what it's like to have a device in your pocket. Both in your house or at school. In a way that made me start to reconsider. What am I doing? Why am I plugging in my phone by my bed? Because it measures my sleep patterns? I don't know. So, <laughs> but I might be scrolling for another 30 minutes right before bed, which you warn against. (laughs) I really think this is a book for everyone. Would you agree? Actually, I would like to ask Andy, what do you think about that? I do agree. And I think that's actually one of the great delights of the book to me is that Amy's written a book that though it is above all written for, you know, kind of kids coming of age in a way and starting to make their own choices in, in a world of devices. I think growing up is probably overrated in many ways. And, and one of them is that I'm actually not sure we get beyond the conflicts and challenges of adolescence as much as we think we have. Mm. Speaking oh, wow. as a 53-year-old, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm so much further beyond the dynamics that Amy is sort of articulating freshly for the first time as a 19-year-old when she's writing the book. I'm not that far beyond those when I open up Instagram or when I'm scrolling social media or when the phone's next to my bed, which is why part of the kind of principles behind the TechWise family were this is not just about the kids. This is about all of Mm. us. And so I always wanted that book not to be about something that parents impose on their children, but really disciplines that begin with those of us who are who are parents, who are adults. And by the same token, I think actually Amy's book ends up not at all being just about, oh, I wonder what it's like for kids these days. It's We're all <laughs> right. in this together. And so it's been really encouraging to feel like we ended up with a book that, that keeps the conversation going for everybody, not just for kids. I will say there was a few moments where, and I am sort of between you guys and generations, but yeah. I, I do not use Snapchat. I don't have a Finsta. <laughs> I did have to relook up Finsta to remember what that was. Oh, <laughs> <I love it. laughs> 
<laughs> Even though we've actually talked about Finstas on the podcast before, but I can never remember which one the real one is which and which is, one the yeah. fake one. Because <laughs> it's ironically named, I guess, right? Yes. And so, Amy, you mentioned this, and some people will probably want to... You, you don't use a lot of uh, jargon yeah. that, that people won't understand, but you do really come from the perspective of someone that just grew up with the things. Yeah. I'd love to ask you about which chapter was sort of mm. hardest for you to write. You write about so many things. I love your titles. We don't have to compare ourselves. Another chapter is we don't have to be distracted. We don't have to be disconnected. Mm-hmm. We don't have to live with secrets. We don't have to edit our lives. I'm sure people are, or just these chapter titles people are relating to. We don't have to avoid boredom. We don't have to be exhausted. Great categories. Mm. What was the hard one for you to dive into? Well... First of all, I am so glad you noticed the chapter titles because we worked so hard on them. Did I was you? like, is anyone actually going to pay attention to the chapter titles? It seems that, that somebody did. And that's a, that's a really good question. I think, hmm, I, I almost think in some ways the very first chapter, we don't have to compare ourselves, was the most difficult to write and also kind of kind of encapsulated what made this book difficult to write. So okay. for those who haven't read the book, I just start out by telling a story, which was from a couple years ago when I was a teenager in high school, when I had gone to a school dance and the day after all the photos from the dance came out and I felt like I had to publish them on Instagram and I hated them. And so I just, I wrote in this first chapter about this storm of just insecurity and self-doubt that came upon me because I, because I didn't like these pictures that someone had taken of me. Wow. And this was the very first thing I wrote kind of for this book. It was actually part Mm. of the book proposal that I submitted to Baker Books, the publisher. It was really difficult to figure out how I could tell this story about myself in a way that could be useful to other people and in a way that could be really honest and vulnerable. Right. I think it was really a challenge in thinking about how to write this book, how to be honest about the genuine challenges that technology brings and yet also have hope that we can, we can face those challenges and grow beyond them. And so I think it was really difficult to have that kind of vulnerability and share this very painful story, but it was kind of necessary to go through that in order to write the rest of the book, which is also in its own ways kind of vulnerable and tells you a lot about who I am. You have some really amazing vulnerable moments in the Mm. book where you share just little stories or what's going through your head as you look at your phone or what you're feeling. Yeah. Is this something you learned as you were writing the book? Or is this is being vulnerable one of your strengths? Mm-hmm. Well, oh, I don't I don't know what I whether whether I would say it's one of my strengths. But I do think you've I think you've hit on actually something which is very central to kind of the book's thesis about technology, which is that in a lot of ways technology makes it easy for us to be less vulnerable on the outside, or it helps Mm. us to kind of hide the things that make us truly vulnerable. And sometimes we can publish things about ourselves which seem kind of open and honest in order to get ourselves more credit. But in fact, technology makes it a lot harder for us to kind of show our real deep fears about ourselves. And so I don't know if that's something that, if being vulnerable is something that I'm good at, so much as when you talk about being tech-wise, you have to enter into a world where you recognize that you are imperfect and you recognize that you kind of have to be in a community making wise decisions, examining your own habits when it comes to technology in order to face that real vulnerability that comes with being a human. We started this next section by Amy reading directly from My TechWise Life. When I was a kid, my parents did their best to keep me away from the fast-paced, always-on types of distraction that technology offers. 
Since we didn't have a TV for so much of my childhood, I didn't know what it was like to flip from channel to channel. Throughout most of elementary school, I didn't go on any screens by myself, so they didn't really keep me busy. Plus, I almost never went on the internet, so I just didn't know what it was like to have billions of distracting destinations at my fingertips. If you ask my parents, they'll tell you this paid off. Sure, they didn't have a TV to distract us kids when they were trying to get dinner on the table, but a few years later, I'd be quietly reading a book when they were cooking, not bothering them at all. And now, I'm often the one making dinner. That is actually <laughs> true. You're the one making dinner. <laughs> I love you um, saying that because this makes you feel like you just, somehow your parents taught you perfectly about technology. You didn't have any technology, so the technology <laughs> family is that we just don't have TVs, we shove it all in some sort of box, and then everything's good. And I bet a lot of people would feel like, I can't live up to that. Mm. That's not yeah. how it works. But in your book, that's not most of what happens. Sure, you have a lot yeah. of stories about it being hard. And so that's why I was hoping, could you read this, this other part from your book? Yes. I don't know about you, but when I see a notification come in, I itch to look at it right away. And even if I manage not to, I'm thinking about it for the next 10 minutes. If I do open it, forget about willpower. I'll look at it for just a minute, and then come 10 minutes of texting, two minutes of looking at Snapchat stories, and only then 10 minutes of working. A homework assignment that should take one hour will take five. Last spring, I noticed that Instagram was sucking away my time. I'd keep refreshing my feed, wishing for something new to show up. And to try to break the habit, I just took the app off my phone, thinking of my out of sight, out of mind rule. A few weeks ago, I downloaded the app again to give a friend a birthday shout out. I debated whether I should delete it right after I posted, but figured I'd leave it up and see how it went. Guess what? I realized Instagram wasn't a distraction anymore. I used to check it five to ten times per day, using it as a source of the distraction I craved. Now I don't feel the urge. I glance at it once a day or so and smile at the pictures of my friends. This app that once destroyed my focus is now just a pleasant occasional diversion. Why do these small steps help? I think it comes down to how work works. It takes patience to work fast. It's really good. What did you mean by that, that it takes patience? Well, I use the metaphor in the book or the comparison in the book that doing work of the kind where we sit at our desk is actually very similar to doing the kind of work we do when we go on a run or something, which is that whenever we're doing something difficult, but especially if I'm, say, going running around my neighborhood trying to coax my legs to keep me going, there's this period of time where it feels like you will never actually make it, where you're just totally out of breath, you don't think you'll get to the end of the run. But if you push through that initial challenge, sort of slowly, invisibly, with patience, you get into a rhythm, you, you, you figure out your pace, and you feel like you could run for another hour. And I think that is how even very non-physical work, even just sitting and typing an essay, actually functions is there will mm. always be an initial mm. period of being distracted and wishing that I was doing something else. But if I push through that and if I don't give in to the temptation to look somewhere else, wow. then I get into this really wonderful rhythm, which a psychologist has called flow. And yeah. so I think we need the patience to know that beyond initial distraction and temptation lies real satisfying success. It's amazing. And it's a good advice. Andy, throughout this book, you write responses to each chapter. Sure. Like there's a chapter mm -hmm. and then there's a little sort of a reflection or a response or maybe yeah. a letter. Kind of a letter from dad. Tell me how that works. Did you write these as Amy wrote the book? Did you write them later? How did that work? I actually waited till the whole thing was done. And okay. the main reason I did that is I didn't, I actually didn't want to be, I didn't want Amy to feel like I was looking over her shoulder while she was writing. Huh. It's a high pressure thing to write any, anything, yes. certainly at book length. And I really wanted her to be free to find and use her own voice and not try to be 
living up to some expectation I might, she might imagine that I had. So, mm. you know, she worked with an editor, wrote the whole thing, and then I got the, the manuscript missing only my letters, but with the plan all along that I would write kind of a response to each chapter. Who's so ha- then, whose idea was that? I mean, it's a clever idea. Did no? You worked with what? Did you work with um, Roxy? Roxanne we, Stone. We worked with yeah, our, our wonderful friend Roxy Roxanne yeah, Stone yeah, I mean, as well from back in the Relevant Magazine days. But, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, and and she's been a friend and colleague of mine for years and years. And working with her on both TechWise projects has been amazing. I don't uh, actually remember exactly how we landed on this way to have you know my voice in the book, but have it really nonetheless feel like really Amy was in the driver's seat in a way. Hmm. But I, I think it ended up working even better than I expected, if I could say that. <laughs> I don't know. You're, you read it, Chris, so you tell us. But it gave me a chance in those little short responses. For one thing, I'm trying to model, if I can put it this way, for I know that parents will also be reading this book. And hmm. I want to model for parents <laughs> how to be non-anxious voices in our children's lives as they work through these issues of tech. I, all of us have very real anxieties as our children are growing up. And especially the teenage years are tough on kids and parents. And it's so easy to parent out of your fears and mm-hmm. out of your own inadequacies. And you kind of overcorrect and overreact. And, and I did some of that, no doubt, when Timothy and Amy were growing up in real time. But with with a little bit of distance and time and patience, I think in these letters back to Amy in the book, I'm able to model, you know, what parenting can be at its best. And then the other thing I'm trying to do mm. is, in a in a gentle way, I might say, frame what she's experiencing and narrating and describing to her own generation in in bigger picture terms, and ultimately, above all, in in kind mm. of the the framework of scripture and mm. the the long tradition of the Christian faith that arose long before technology and will actually be here long after what we currently call technology is gone. And and to give a kind of biblical framework or reference point for, for what's going on in the book. Well, you write several times that this book actually isn't about technology. Yeah. Yes. What is it about? <laughs> Amy, do you want to take that first? <laughs> Oh, no. Um, Sure. I mean, (laughs) I think the title is My Tech Wise Life. I think it's all, it's in two of those words, wise and life. So what dad writes is he cites scripture that when we're seeking to live wisely with technology, we're seeking to live the life that really is life which is something that, that Paul wrote to Timothy many, many years ago in a very different context and which yet is still really true today. We want the life that really is life, not a cheap imitation of it that you can get by opening up your smartphone. Wow. And the way that we get there, part of the way we get there is through wisdom, which is both a gift from God and something that with God's grace we can cultivate. And so I think that this book is about so much more than tech because it's about learning how to pursue the good life in a wise way. Hmm. Would you add to that, Andy? Yeah, I mean, I think that's beautifully put. But I and I would just add that that I actually think technology itself is not is not about technology, except in the narrowest hmm. sense. I mean, there there is a you know, there's a technical layer to our technology. There's the way that we process information and there's protocols and, you know, there's the whole stack of, of tech that, that we build on. But but all of that is, to, is put into the service of something that has nothing to do with our technical knowledge, mm-hmm. which is trying to be the human beings that we want to be. And so really what technology is about is humanity. What is it to be a person? What is it yes. to be a human being? What's missing in my life as a person? What's missing in my human experience? And and how do I bridge the gap between what I feel like I ought to be and what my daily life seems to be? And those are perennial questions that technology, the stack that goes from your, you know, the, the electrical power coming into your home to the 
screen that you're watching something on, it, th that stack has no answers to those questions. <laughs> right. And those questions are not new. And our potential answers, including our distorting answers, that is the answers that actually lead us away from the life that really is life, those also are not new. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. the compulsions that we experience around technology, these are not new experiences. There, there's no. compulsion in the Bible. There's compulsion at every stage of human history. It just gets refracted through different forms at different points. So I was going to say, if it's not new, then what's changed? Technology doesn't matter. Right? <laughs> technology is neutral. <laughs> well, well, so I, I think two things. First, I don't, I don't believe anything in the world is neutral. I think God created the world good. I think human beings, as they extend, as they discover and extend the world, approach the very goodness that God speaks over the world at the end of creation. So you could say the natural world is created good. The cultural world is the expression of what God says at the end. It's very good. So culture at its best is very good. Yes. It actually is tending towards or leading towards an ultimate revelation of what was meant to be all along, which I would call glory. Mm -hmm. So good to very good to glory is the, the intended mm -hmm. direction. And then the distortions are not neutral either. They're actually quite damaging. They're quite undermining of that that progression from good to very good to glory. So those those aren't neutral either. So I, I don't believe that much in life is neutral. And then I would say that here's the way I'm thinking about it for, for my own next book, that that we took the discoveries that science gave us about how the world worked. This is one thing that's new, is that we know how the world works in a way that the ancient world did not. And so the ancient world tried to solve all these same problems of being human in various ways. Mm. You know, this, it, it isn't raining, so we the sky god must be displeased. So let's make an offering to the sky god. That was their best attempt to kind of put together how the world worked and why it wasn't working on our behalf in the way we wanted. Well, now we might, you know, I don't know, we might go uh, send an aircraft up to seed the clouds or we might, you know, develop right. irrigation systems or whatever. But the knowledge of the natural world was yoked to a dream about what it could mean to be human mm. that I actually think didn't, couldn't come from science and actually came from, I would say, alchemy, which is the quest to control the world in such a way that we have unlimited wealth. Because if you had the ultimate goal of alchemy, the Philosopher's Stone, you could turn anything into gold. And also to escape death, because the belief was the one who had the Philosopher's Stone um, would never mm -hmm. die. Harry Potter with the Philosopher's Stone. But oh, well, <laughs> it's when you start looking for alchemy, which we all think of as like totally dead, like it's gone, it didn't work, right? Actually, it, it is the fund and the fuel of our dreams of what we want our technology mm -hmm. to do for us. In that way, what's new is additional knowledge of how the world works, though not the ability to use that in a way that makes us more human necessarily, and a particularly distorted dream of what we would do if we got our hands on this kind of power. So yeah, in one sense, nothing's new. In, in another way, we are really living in a uniquely perilous moment, I think, for mm -hmm. being human and being persons. Is this, you said the next book a moment ago, what's the title of the next book? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I knew. We're in conversations with what's my the, publisher what's, about what's the next the, book. Uh, but the, the, <laughs> the subtitle topic <laughs> is the next book. The topic is technology and loneliness and the hope for a more personal world. It's really a book about how technology and persons don't go to, together very well and, yeah. and why. So, Amy, I want to ask you, if you become a parent someday in the future, mm. Would you raise your kids the same way that you were raised? This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So 
So Amy, if you become a parent someday, would you raise your kids the same way that you were raised? Well, I I do hope that that happens, God willing. And I have thought about this. And the challenging thing is I have no idea what technology will look like when I right. have children. I do not know Snapchat where won't we will still be, be there, man. <laughs> oh man, Snapchat is not surviving. <laughs> it's I don't know what the world will look like even tomorrow and even less do I know what the world will look like when God willing I have a, a family. Uh-huh. But yeah. I think I I think that really the kind of core of this, you know, tech-wise family is about discernment and about cultivating the ability to assess the role that technology is playing in our life. And absolutely, I want to be raising children in such a way that they can discern, they have the God-given gift, really, of discerning what it is that technology does to us, what it is that technology imagines us to be. And I think that that will require, you know, tech-wise disciplines, whether of not having a TV or probably it'll be more like not have iPads when you're four or, you know. And Turn so off the I VR do... walls. I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> you, have to, you have to take your goggles off at least one hour a day. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, we need those disciplines in order to attain that discernment. And so I absolutely think that I will be seeking for my whole family, not not just the kids, to be practicing discipline when it comes to these very tempting, very powerful devices and just ensuring that uh, the human is in charge and not the technology. Andy, Amy's got a lot of wisdom here. <laughs> it's kind of um, overwhelming, honestly. <laughs> when you When you were reading her book after you got those letters done, we, as we mentioned before, you wrote My TechWise Family 2017. Is there anything now, after you read her book, that you would want to update in yours, that you learned mm. from what she was saying or that were mm. thoughts that you saw? I think the thing that's in Amy's book that I underestimated, maybe, is, well, and that I, gosh, that I feel very conflicted about to this mm. moment, is... I did not talk much in the TechWise family directly about essentially the social layer of, mm. you know, we call it social mm. media, which I think, you know, it's become it becomes a cliche. You don't pay attention to what that phrase is really saying. But if you take it apart, the social layer of what we've built, the way that so much of relationships starting very early and all exacerbated, of course, by the pandemic, our connection to one another, which is what social is about, is all mediated. And Mm -hmm. what gets transmitted and what gets lost in that and how that affects development, especially in adolescence, which is the, the season of life, at least in our culture, I don't know if this is like a human universal, I don't think it is, certainly parts of it are not universal. But we do shift our attachments from our parents, you know, mother, especially mm-hmm, mother in mm-hmm. infancy, mother and father. You shift to a wider circle of relationships. And, and to have that all happen now, mediated by screens, or maybe not all, but an astonishing amount of it. I, I didn't deal with that much in TechWise Family. And when I read Amy's book, I'm just struck at how fraught mm-hmm. that is with opportunities to really miss out on, on almost everything that makes relationships res- resilient and robust, I guess I would say. So it's a very thin, tends to be a very thin way of relating that mm-hmm. actually feels quite safe in many ways. But, but the safer your environment is, the less robust and resilient you you are. And I really worry, even though I see value in some of these media, I want to think more about what I think is really good <laughs> for human beings. I have to say, we're recording this in the midst of a, a just a huge upheaval in American life that's like the last, well, we hope, <laughs> perhaps right. the last coda of a whole presidency that was built on social media. 
And I really, really wonder in the long run whether we will not say that starting with the television, that the introduction of media into the structures of social life did far more harm than good and far more damage than any benefit they created, which is not to deny that there are some benefits. So I would have spent more time thinking about how we can make good choices, again, as parents and kids, about the social the social worlds that we build in these very thin, mediated environments. Andy, in the last few days, we have watched some unreal events in Washington, D.C. that affected our country. One thing I noticed is that the majority leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, stood up and, and said some things before actually some of the folks broke into the Capitol, but he said, we cannot keep drifting into two separate realities. Mm-hmm. That's one of his statements. You've obviously written on the church's role in culture and the way technology shapes us. And so I was just wanting your analysis on comment on what do you think about separate realities in technology? Help diagnose this for us. <laughs> well, all media put something in the middle between people. So media comes from the Latin word for middle. And this can be very powerful and very useful and sometimes it's sometimes without a doubt beneficial we're trying to make the most of it right now we're using media to have this conversation mm-hmm. and we hope that that the net result is good for human beings and for us as persons right and i think it can be i think what has been lost in american life and again the pandemic just accelerated something that was already happening is we always have an interpolated mediating layer that we shape and choose. It's shaped by our preferences, often without our even being aware of it. Facebook, Instagram are going to show you things they know you'll engage with. They know you better than you know yourself. They will give you things you would never ask for because they know that's what you really want. If they gave you the choice, you'd say, I, I don't, that's not me on my best day. I know, I know that's what my revealed hmm. preference is, but, but give me a chance to ask for something different. But th- they won't ask. They'll just give it to you. The reason we're in such a polarized time is that we are not having, if I can put it this way, immediate experience. I would actually say first simply of the natural world, the world in which I'm very small, because in the world of media, I'm very large, I'm very important, I'm flattered, I'm catered to, I get notifications whenever anything of importance happens. That doesn't happen when I walk outside and look up at the stars at night or look at the birds in my backyard. So we're, we're cut off from the natural world, from ourselves as creatures in the natural world. We're cut off from our fellow human beings who, for all of our attempts to dehumanize them, I mean, at the limit in experiences of warfare, you have to be trained, like rigorously trained, to not see that there's a human being that you're killing on the other side. And no one comes out of killing another human being without trauma. But people walk away from verbal violence, which Jesus said was just as bad as murder, without Mm. the slightest trauma today, the slightest Mm. visible trauma, because we Mm. do not experience other people as people. What role does the church have to do with that? Well, we we have got to reconvene persons at the scale where we can encounter one another's persons. And then I think we have to reclaim this beautiful and troubling thing that Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, which is you actually can never afford to have an unmediated relationship. You always need Christ mediating between mm. two oh, people. Wow. Sure. And we've replaced Christ the mediator between persons in all of our conflicts, as well as all of our similarities, in all of our desire for unity, as well as all of our desire to flee the other. We've replaced Christ with these media that are not built to reconcile human beings to one another. So this is a moment when the church desperately needs to be what it's meant to be, because I don't think we have the structures of civil life. Since the Nixon-Kennedy debate went to TV, we have hurtled headlong into a mediated civil square. Mm-hmm. But the church could offer something different and must if we're going to have a way out, I think. wise words. I'm with you on so much of that. You know, this language of mediacy or immediacy, which I think is helpful in some cases. I've argued in the past, so I've been writing on communications and technology as well. And I think it's arguable that all human interaction is mediated. Yes. 
um, that's language, right. language, of course, right. uh, technology in every way. And of course, we can go back to the old story of you know Aristotle going written language is going to create forgetfulness, <laughs> and then you sort of move forward from there. So everyone, we've worried about mediations in human relationships. Yep. I sometimes think when we think about social media and even our divisions, some folks will picture an idyllic 1950s-ish neighborhood where I have my neighbors on a block and I borrow eggs or something. And what strikes me is that I think probably we've been being false selves to our neighbors as long as we've been false selves to folks on Instagram, potentially. Would you agree with that? I would, and I certainly don't think there's some idyllic moment we ought to return to. And there's been dehumanization through throughout history, in a way, and false presentation of oneself for, for all of history. I mean, going back at least to the kiss in the garden, right? So I think that the way that our... Div- a lot of it's about amplification. <laughs> so what yes. our technology today is able to do, that we weren't always able to do as human beings, is amplify all of these tendencies we have and have always had. And, and, and to do so with so little with so little friction it's so it's it's more power with less effort <laughs> it's like superpowers right superpowers are a huge amount of power with almost no effort like superman just thinks about it and he's flying he doesn't have to flap his wings he doesn't get tired at the end of the flight you know and when you introduce superpowers into human life you take all these things that have always been part of the human condition and you you release them from constraint and you amplify their capability and that's the sense in which I don't think our media today are just the same as language or writing were. I think we have crossed yeah. a threshold into the realm of superpowers that we're not prepared for. I wonder if, I don't know that we have, for instance, an amplification for communication. You know, social media doesn't particularly, you know, I don't know how many followers I have online, but because of algorithms, 100 people might see something, something could go much more viral and go further. But they're nothing like, the ability for the Walter Cronkite era to speak to the entire nation at once. So this is broadcast media, right? The radio or the television. We had Walter Cronkite, Amy, sorry, really old. And then Peter Jennings, maybe. Uh, or, still or too old. Dan Rather, still too old. <laughs> See, this is the question that I'm going to stumble towards. I don't assume that, Amy, you've watched a lot of live TV. Like, do we, you know, I grew up in an era at the end of the era where three newscasters could talk to the whole nation. My thought about one of the polarizing facts in the United States right now is not particularly that Twitter is doing that, but that the interaction between a late broadcast media and a social media is doing that. Hmm. Meaning that there is a generation that trusts a certain source of one voice is the Uh godlike broadcast voice, and we trust that. And now they're lost in a fragmented social media world. And so we're dealing with trust, authority, and communication. And the interplay between, say, a cable news channel that got very famous during the Trump era and social media. And the interaction between those two creates things that maybe, if Amy's generation doesn't pay attention to broadcast TV in the same way, will maybe some of that move on? Hmm. It's it's possible (laughs) there's a lot of ideas in there that i don't i have to think through i yeah we'll never probably again have the day when was something like 77 million americans all at the same time watch the beatles on the ed sullivan show i mean that's just unthinkable now at the same time these new media do have their incredibly outsized influential people of whom the the immediate past president of the united states is has benefited more than anyone. I mean, Donald Trump just doesn't become president without Twitter and without hundreds of millions mm. of people paying attention to what he says on Twitter. So, and there's there's also an immediacy to it, an immediacy to the effect of social media, the way that it comes in throughout the day and notifications. I mean, Walter Cronkite had to wait till whatever it was, 6.30 p.m. to have his influence. Whereas someone who's an influencer on social media like has people on the hook every moment. So... I'm not sure we have less a mass kind of capability to to communicate and distort the mass experience than we had back in the days of three networks. I think it's just shifted. The power has shifted and it has fragmented, but that doesn't make it any less powerful or any less distorting for whoever's in that particular echo chamber. And there's many of them. Um, 
Let me ask you as we as we finish up. A lot of folks that listen to Device and Virtue are just Christian leaders, and they are adults, not teens. You know, and you're not a teen <laughs> anymore either. But they're seeking to lead a church or mm-hmm. to lead a ministry in how to guide teens and families in in the technology. But if you were going to pick sort of one thing that you know you get five minutes to to say to the pastors, hey, wait, you should be saying this, not this. What what would you want to say? Mm. Yeah, I think. It kind of ties into what dad was just saying, actually, which is that for so many people my age, the things that happen online, that is real life. Hmm. I think often adults, people who haven't grown up with technology, it can be hard to understand how important that online social world can be. It can be so hard to understand Uh, why it matters that this person didn't like your picture or (laughs) that you didn't get added to this group chat. And so I would say acknowledge how much the social world is happening online. And as as you lead and live with teens, just know that that pain is as real as what you'd think of as kind of real life exclusion or or social happenings. And so I do think that it's healthier for people my age to move toward a social world that is somewhat less mediated, but do not take that to mean that the mediated online world is not real and impactful. Hmm. Don't take it lightly. It seems like yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good word. I appreciate that. Well, the book is My TechWise Life, Growing Up and Making Choices in a World of Devices from Baker Books, from author Amy Crouch and her father, Andy Crouch. It has been really great to be with you guys today. Thank you for having the conversation. Thank you. Thanks so much. This was great, great. Great questions. So, Adam, that's Amy Crouch and Andy Crouch on the TechWise family. Yeah. Really good. It's so I, good. Yeah. A lot of wisdom there. What did you think? Well, I mean, first of all, thanks to Amy and Andy for coming on the podcast. It was such a privilege to hear from them. Yeah, there's so many good nuggets that I want to talk about. Maybe I'll start by pulling two things together, That one from each of them. At one point, Amy says, in a lot of ways, technology makes it easy for us to be less vulnerable, Mm. and it helps us to kind of hide the things that make us truly vulnerable. Hmm. And then later, Andy is sort of talking about something that he felt like he had missed in his book, The TechWise Family, Hmm. and what he felt Amy kind of brought in. And that was just how these relationships were so infringed upon by technology. And he he talks about how we develop as teenagers in this media environment and we're developing new relationships in that moment. And he says he kind of missed how, he said, how fraught it is with almost everything that makes relationships really resilient and robust. Hmm. I sort of see what they're saying as a bit mirror images in some ways. Like she's saying- uh She's talking about vulnerability and how technology sort of prevents vulnerability. And he's sort of acknowledging that like implicitly what vulnerability does is it makes relationships resilient and robust. Oh, interesting. But that yeah. if we if we don't embrace the risk of vulnerability yeah. online, we don't have the benefit of developing resilient and robust relationships. You know, I like that this was, came in that part where I had noticed in the book when I was reading Andy multiple times, because, you know, she wrote a chapter and then he wrote these little right. letters in yeah. response, which is a cool format. Yeah. And he started saying in each of these letters, this book is more and more not about technology. And I asked him about that, right? And you heard uh-huh. that. He's like, it's really just, it's very human. It's about relationships. It's about trust. It's about us trying to be human. And so now you get to this language around vulnerability and these strong relationships. It's almost like the technology became a lens on how do we have weak or strong relationships? Yeah. You know, as I kind of listened to the episode, I realized that 
I felt almost sad okay. listening to it a little bit, but I don't think that's what they would want me to come away feeling. And I realized it's actually not that I feel sad necessarily, but that there's actually a, a longing. Which sad emoji would that be? Like the, <laughs> the t- tears flowing on the face or just like one tear? I, I'm sorry. I'm, this was I'm, an important point. You're no, no, no. Make. It's all right. <laughs> you not, felt like I'm not as versatile in my emoji language, <laughs> despite having done an episode on it. There's just this sense of longing that I felt listening to them talking about the wise life that we pursue and how technology can sort of take that away from us a little bit Hmm. and that we can, we can recede behind our screens into a place that's not vulnerable into a place that is easier to hide behind and not engage in the risky work of vulnerability that actually produces resilience and robust relationships. She goes on to talk about discipline and discernment. And I I think technology does mean that we have to build in disciplines into our life that ultimately help us resist the directions it wants to take us. Which I love, although when it wants to take us, you know, I will react a little bit and go, does, you know, Kevin Kelly's what is technology wants? Is it really doing... But does it just give us a lens about emotional maturity in general? When After we got done with this interview, one of the things that struck me about Amy, she was just really remarkable in her presence right. and her ability to articulate what she was thinking, but also her emotional vulnerability. Even just on an interview, she felt sort of very genuine, not over proud, not right. too insecure. And that's something that not every human ever reaches. No, not at all. <laughs> right, this is hard. This is even the work of spiritual maturity. This is the things that God calls us into. It made me wonder, is Andy Crouch's house, and I don't. I know they probably wouldn't want their family held up as the family, but <laughs> let's be honest, they wrote a book about how their family <laughs> puts away phones at night and does all these things as yeah. a family. So like they're a little bit of a model. Is their family mature in this because they figured out how to manage technology? Or was their family spiritually mature area for emotional healthy growth and that's what led to a good mature use of technology it made me wonder is amy a mature person because she just grew up in a mature family not just because they had great roles on technology it could be a little bit of both honestly we need people like amy and andy to do that thinking for us to help us think it through for ourselves but it it really does then become kind of the a matter of discipline and a matter of habits to cultivate a certain maturity. One thing I like about the book is what we said before, that there's a Barna survey of all these teenagers throughout, and they ask different questions about how people use technology, like how often do you check your phone the first thing in the morning? 86% <laughs> of people say that's what they oh, do. Man. Uh, and this was for teenagers, right? But I bet this actually yeah. would apply to lots of people. One question here said, you know, do you, do you strongly agree or somewhat agree that you feel genuinely connected to people through social media? Yeah. And it was interesting to me. So 31% said they really strongly agree. And then almost 50% total agreed that they do. Yeah. Yeah. And that they do feel connected to people on social media. And I, and you probably have thoughts about that. One thing I noticed about Amy in the book and in the interview is that she was pretty balanced throughout. She was never like, people aren't connected to people on social media. It's (laughs) terrible. It's all sham. And she was never like, you know, this doesn't matter. She went through the sort of real challenges of feeling sometimes alone, even though she was talking to someone. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that sense of connection, that sense of genuine connection I think actually happens not when someone else is vulnerable with us, but when we're vulnerable with someone else. Okay. And, and, and so, yeah, 50% are saying, yes, I've, I feel like I've genuinely disclosed about myself to others. Yeah. Um, And I think it goes on less than 25% said no. You know, strongly no, disagree. Yeah, right. Right. Which is really so more people felt connected than, yeah. than felt disconnected yeah. in this survey. Yes. So there, there is a, a space and a potential for vulnerability online. Right. And yet, can we be completely ourselves or can we be... Is technology pushing us away from that vulnerability, pushing us into our, our natural proclivity to hide? So 
So another thing that I think sort of contributed to this sense of longing that I was feeling as I was listening to it was just this sense that there's sort of this uphill battle for our humanity mm-hmm. that I'm fighting not only for my dignity in vulnerability, but also to dignify and humanize the other person. And Andy sort of talked about this, you know, you have to be trained rigorously in warfare to kill another human being and it's not without trauma, mm-hmm. you know, and he, he kind of used this really stark analogy, mm-hmm. but he's likening it back to this idea that we can dehumanize a person on the other side of the screen without the slightest bit of, he called it physical trauma in our social mediated state. I can just dehumanize them and disregard their humanity, even when I engage with them and comment or, yeah, it's or like whatever. That, or the road rage problem of like, right. well, we've, yeah. we've called it that before, like yeah, we're in a absolutely. car and suddenly everything else looks like something we can yell at. Yeah. And I think this goes back to things Amy was saying about discipline and discernment. Like we have to figure out practices for humanizing the other person in a context where technology is going to tend to push us to disregard their humanity. And and that that's that sadness, that's that longing that I was feeling. I wanna see other people as human beings, but yet we're so bombarded with hundreds of people every day on social media, whether we know them or don't know them, that we can't like, just like walking through a crowded street, like we can't dignify every person with our attention. And I find that to be really challenging. You know, I know I know you love the city, but I, I find that hard in the city at times to like walk There's past so people, people and disregard them. Sure. I think the problem, uh, well, I like the numbers problem. I was thinking a second ago, like w- if you and I are talking on a video chat and it's a, the higher definition that video chat is, the more human you look to me. I see more of your <laughs> eyes, your sadness, your laughter, and I think it's easier to keep the other person as human uh, because the communication channels are high definition. They're hot. And okay. whereas there are certain channels, a uh, Google docs comment section <laughs> that can feel very low resolution and it can be really easy to get frustrated with that comment that's sitting on there. Right. That dehumanization has something to do not with only with technology, but also the layers of communication that are available to us in the type of technology, I think. Yeah. And I really appreciate where Andy kind of took this in his own thinking when he was talking about, we've replaced Christ, the mediator between all persons in our conflicts. And these media mm-hmm. have, have are not built to reconcile human beings to one another. Christ is the mediator who reconciles people to one another and, and brings our humanity into focus into clarity into high definition with each other no it's really good super cool conversation yeah Uh, yeah thanks to amy and andy truly i said this in the conversation but i do think my tech wise life which amy wrote toward teenagers might actually wind up becoming a book that all of us want to read because it's a short read it's smart it will convict so recommend it awesome okay chris it's time for vice or virtue Snapchat. Oh, snap. <laughs> oh, man. You've been saving that one up, haven't you? <laughs> do you Do you even have Snapchat on your phone? I, I have TikTok. I don't have Snapchat. <laughs> you I have never snapped in my life. I did not ask Amy if she has TikTok. It's curious to me as, <laughs> as a former 19-year-old because she talked about Snapchat a lot. Yeah, yeah. She brought it up multiple times about oh, man. her life <laughs> growing up. In that, and I was thinking to myself a little bit like, yeah, I use... Twitter, Instagram, not the Snapchat. Yeah. (laughs) And so like you send it, it disappears, but you send it to one friend. It's a text message, but it's a video to a friend and it disappears, right? That's Snapchat. I sound old. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that was always the idea of it. I feel like it became more than that. It just became like, I feel like the primary teen app but so here's the thing i did install it about two years ago but you didn't have any friends that were using it. i had two other friends that were using it and turned out there were other campus ministers that were trying it out <laughs> <laughs> so like right we, we were trying it to see what happened i sent like two snaps it's like you swipe to the left or the right to like send a snap and i did not know what was happening 
<laughs> this is funny because I normally pride What's myself on like I normally, I despite my age, I understand exactly how it's going to go. But <laughs> it has a little ghost icon <laughs> on the app button on your phone, and that was confusing as all. So I'm going to call this a vice. Wait, why? It's know. like a ghost, like it disappears over time. That's the idea, or something, right? I think uh, that's the oh, idea. I see, got it. <laughs> I man, can I abstain? Like I don't know. Um, I've never used it. I have only heard bad things from news reports, which I don't lend much weight to. It's connecting. You do like ghosts. It's it's connecting teens together and maybe they feel vulnerable on it. Maybe it's enabling vulnerability. So maybe it's a virtue. (laughs) Well, that's the least informed vice or virtue we've ever done. Absolutely. (laughs) And we've done some really crazy ones. With apologies to Amy Crouch. Yes. For, yes. For We're sorry. We do do other rights of virtues on every episode of, of the podcast and find us on Instagram or Facebook. I think we'll be posting some questions. We should post some questions about Amy's yeah, book. Huh? That'd be great. To see what folks think when she writes about boredom or editing our lives. So find us on Instagram or Facebook and tell us what you thought. See ya. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.